from GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, when circularity meets climate tech, the latest skirmish in the war on plastics, what the year ahead in sustainability looks like on the other side of the pond, and six packaging trends you need to know. It's a wrap this week on 350. It's January 14th, 2022. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. We're so glad to have you with us and joining me from, well, where are you? Heather Clancy, Editorial Director, where in the world are you today? (laughs) Where in the world am I? I am actually with my father in Tazewell, Tennessee, which is near Knoxville. Um, Quite cold, but quite lovely. Yeah, And you did a bit of a road uh, trip, I think. Yeah, just a little road trip. Yeah. I did. My 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 dad spent uh, the holidays in Texas with my brother, and I flew to Texas, Houston, earlier this week, and um, drove him back to Tennessee, and actually got to two states I've never been in: <laughs> Alabama and Mississippi. <laughs> yeah, pretty crazy. I I, I was yeah, quite uh, well, quite flat. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've been to I've yeah. been to all fifty states. Um, my 50th state was the 49th state, Alaska. Um, I mean, Ah. my 50th state was anyway, you know, you get what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, it's fun between, um, I used to, uh, my wife and I used to drive cross country almost every summer, um, when we were living in DC and wanted to get the heck out of Dodge Mm -hmm. for the, during the humid Mm -hmm. months, come out to California before we moved out here. And um, between that and speaking engagements and huh. events and you know our GreenBiz executive network, which meets at corporate headquarters, which can be in Nebraska or Iowa or any number of other places that aren't necessarily on the beaten path for us coastal elites. <laughs> um, and mm-hmm. so, uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've traversed this uh, these United States. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a big flat country mostly, except for the, you know, a few in- interesting places, the App- Appalachia, where you are now and uh, or near, and mm-hmm. uh, the Rockies and, you know, New England and the coasts. Um, it's a lot of flat, but you know what's what's even flatter, the Canadian prairie. Because I've driven across Canada a couple of times. Oh, well, so guess where my dad is and, from and, originally. And when you drive across Canada, the the Great Plains of the United States, as they move north, they get wider from east to west, and so it's an even longer, yep. wider expanse. So yeah, it's pretty flat. <laughs> well, my father is originally from Winnipeg, yep. Joel. Yep. Been. So he's go, he went from flat. Actually, it's it's beautiful. There's rolling mountains here. It's, it's quite lovely. Yeah. But yeah, Alabama and Mississippi never been there. And I also had never driven in Louisiana and did drive through the bios there. That was quite interesting. Um, I, the, the swamps and so forth. But yeah, yeah, I it was a long drive, but I I'm happy I did it, and I can check two more states off okay, my list. Okay, well let's uh, move on from there and and check off of our list the weekend review. I'm 
to set you up, Joel, with our first story because it is your story. The War on Plastics, 2022, A Change of Climate. I always have the pleasure of reading your newsletter columns because I edit them. And uh, so I always know whether I'm going to pick one of yours <laughs> very early in the week. But I really loved your take on the plastic dialogue. Um, everyone was really focused on the well, as you mentioned, the, the hapless sea turtle, uh, the, the video, they got a lot of people really upset a couple of years back. But um, I love how you frame this, um, that this is a totally different issue now because it's really, well, it's not totally different. It's the, the perception of it needs to be different. Um, but I love how you frame this as something that we need to more, more closely tie to the climate change dialogue. Um, and I couldn't agree with you more. One of your points in this, and I'm going to shut up in a moment and let you talk, but one of the points that I really, really appreciated was sort of the um, the activists talking in their own little silos and, and not really supporting each other. I, I had sort of that this epiphany where I'm like, oh my God, yes, they do it too. <laughs> but anyway, I'll shut up. I was wondering what what led you to this particular column in this particular moment. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, Plastics isn't the only place where where uh, the environmental community is sort of siloed. Um, but yeah, w the point of this was to say that, you know, the next front on the war in plastic, and by the way, every time I say the war in plastic, the plastic uh, industry or those who are uh, ally allied with it just get really upset. Like, I'm attacking Cringe. plastic, and I'm not. I'm, a, I'm, I'm reporting on what's going on out there. Waste. And, and what, anyway, uh, I'm not anti-plastic. I am anti-plastic waste, and that's a huge, huge difference. Yes. But, but the, the next skirmish is, in this is really linking uh, climate to plastic and to plastic waste. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not just the, you know, we've been talking about the waste piece of this, the, the, the turtle, the, the beaches, the ocean microplastics and all that. It's very important, needs to be dealt with. But at the same time, there's, a, uh, since climate has become... Um, rightfully so, the center of, of gravity in the environmental movement and hopefully in the business world as well, eventually, that um, this really is also has a has climate impacts. So there's, you know, greenhouse gases emitted throughout the, you know, ex extraction, of obviously, of oil and gas, the using of them to make plastic, the, the manufacturing of materials and products made from plastic, uh, and then at the back end, you know, the disposal and some in the developing world, the burning of plastic to make for fuel or just to get rid of it. And um, that's, you know, a, a climate, there's some climate issues there. And so to the extent I mm -hmm. was wondering, really musing to a certain extent, um, to the extent that the anti-plastic waste uh, activists, you know, link their, hitch their wagon to uh, the climate movement, um, it could be a powerful thing. Mm -hmm. And there's signs of that uh, of that coming. There are a number of reports that have talked about the climate impacts of plastic and plastic waste. Um, so I was really talking about that's the new, the next, uh, could be the next thing. And to the extent that it is, will companies be ready to take that on. You know, they think about what happened back in 2018, 2019 with that, again, hapless sea turtle with a straw up its nose um, that became a, a symbolic and, and, you know, a powerful symbol of of where we are as a, as a world in terms of our stuff is out there in the world. And 
some of it we can't see the microplastics in the ocean, but some of it is very visible and heart heart wrenching, and and so we need to deal with that. Um, but um, back then, you know, you remember all the brands, the Unilevers and Procter's and Gamble's and Clorox's and everybody and the retailers committing really very quickly to phase out plastic waste by making things recyclable or compostable. You know, even despite the fact that the recycling and composting infrastructure doesn't really exist, but they made these commitments. So what's going to happen to these brands when climate and plastic get linked? Are they ready? And I said, I, I imagine they're not. Yes. Yeah, so many things are running through my head because I can't tell you how many people that I've had like a conversation about plastics with and ask them if they knew that plastic was largely petroleum based. And many people don't know that. I mean, many people don't understand the link. And I mean, how simple would it be to simply talk about where it comes from and what's in it um, and, and how it is derived? Um, and I don't know, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not remembering if you really addressed this in your column, but how many of those brands that you just mentioned have virgin plastic you know not they're, they're not going to use virgin plastic um well i mean a lot of them and uh, and, and i think mo pretty mm -hmm. much all of them are are years away from from getting to that place mm -hmm. um but yeah this i mean i, I want to emphasize again you know linkedin you know jumped on this and and, and a whole lot of folks uh, came up with some very very thoughtful comments you know about why plastic has climate benefits, and which I mentioned in the piece, somehow they missed that, that yes, it lightweighting things reduces the transportation costs. <laughs> Headline. Uh, yeah, imagine mm -hmm. that, people commenting without actually reading. Um, and um, lots of other benefits, uh, not to mention, you know, protecting food waste uh, or, you know, and, and mm -hmm. sanitation and a number of other things that are have always been important and even more important in our COVID world. I am not against plastic. <laughs> I am not, and even talking about the war on plastic, using that phrase, which again, as a reporter, sort of seeing what I'm, reporting what I'm seeing out there, people didn't like that because it's just you know, feeding into, I don't know, some other meme. Mm -hmm. But this is a, you know, these are serious issues. Uh, plastic, we haven't gotten into the toxicity issues and Cancer Alley down not too far from where you were driving uh, recently. Heather in Louisiana and, and, and environs, Texas, um, you know, there are a lot of issues here that need to be dealt with. And we can't just say plastic is good because it saves energy. Um, there are lots of other things that need to be looked at. And climate is one of them. And, uh, you know, others, there will be other skirmishes on this. Yes. Or on plastic. But I'm going to turn the tables now to you, Heather, because I love this piece that you did. Um, not unrelated because uh, it's about materials and their life cycle and their impacts called When Circularity Meets Climate Tech. Um, you know, this this whole what's now called climate tech used to be called clean tech, solar panels, wind turbines, uh, uh, and, and lots of other things that are a lot less known that are that fall under that that rubric of climate tech. They're not all that clean in some re regards if you look at them from a life cycle perspective. And yeah, what happens at the end of a life of a solar panel? So that's what you wrote about, Heather. Talk a little bit about what you found. So my 
piece this week was inspired by a couple of different things. First of all, I was doing the usual year-end scan of top headlines for 2021 on on greenbiz.com. And I noticed that one of the most widely read stories was investigative. In fact, it was the second most read story on greenbiz.com. It was a piece about what happens to solar panels when they've basically like done their time and are ready to retire. Um, And then also in the top five was a piece on what happens to wind turbine blades. Uh, And again, uh, you know, and, and so in the case of both, there's there's not there's not a lot of great things to say. There's there's wonderful um, there's there's materials. That, let, let's just take cold solar panels here. You've got quite a few um, precious metals in them, uh, lots of glass, but most of them wind up at shredders or landfills because right now it's really hard to get them apart. Um, and the glass and the aluminum aluminum of in them doesn't really have an, a good economic, uh, you know cost uh, associated with it. Like if you, you know, there's, there was no way to really sell the stuff. Right. And then on the wind turbine side, um, these things are massive and there's just really not an infrastructure um, to, to handle them. In fact, in the European union, they actually burn them. I mean, it's just, it's just some of them get buried. Some of them get burned. Um, there aren't many um, options for recycling. So that was sort of just one thing I was like, wow, you know, we don't think about this all that much circularity for these, you know, I mean, this is, it's, it's actually in some ways kind of the, the theme of this week is all about, it's not black and white, right? There's a lot of gray. There's a lot of gray in plastics issue. There's a lot of gray in this. So basically I got to wondering why, you know, how much the, the, the folks out there, all these climate tech startups that are being funded are really thinking about it, especially the hardware manufacturers. Like what are we, are we the people that are giving them money looking closely at how these things are going to be made, how they're designed, how they can be taken apart when they need to be moved into their, their next life cycle. And um, I was suggesting, because I, I, I talk a lot to the consumer electronics industry, I talked to two companies recently that just had some really interesting ideas. The first is Dell. They've been one of the um, forerunners of circular design in personal computers. And they have this this, uh, new prototype out in December called Concept Luna. And, um, you know, they're they're basically, it's very much, I have to just point out, it is not a product. It is a proof of concept. um, But there's, there's just really very different design elements in it that could find their way into Dell products um, over the next year, uh, over the next cycle, right? So far fewer screws. So like there's four screws holding this laptop together, four. And that's like a 10 times reduction over what's normally there. So it helps it get apart more, apart more easily, can be repaired more easily. They put together the uh, circuit board with some different uh, materials, this polymer is water soluble, so the recycler can more easily separate out the metals. Uh, there's there's easy w- easier ways to take the motherboard out. It's actually in the top cover. So they're just, they're, they're, they were playing with all sorts of different design elements that can make this easier to repair and also easier to disassemble and recycle and upcycle and remanufacture at the end of its life. So that was just the one thing. The other one was, um, the speaker manufacturer Sonos. Did you have you? Do you? I don't know if you have one. Did you not. know that? I'm hoping. Okay, the company, pretty uh, you know, pretty well known uh, among audiophiles, and they have these speakers. And I was astonished to um, to discover that from speaking with their head of social impact that 
more than 90% of those speakers that have been manufactured and put out and are still in use, which I think they've been around for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, are still in use because they make sure the software updates can go to older devices. And that, that also mm. got me thinking, you know, oh, you know, think about all the sort of the, the, the designed obsolescence, right? The planned obsolescence, if you call it will, that requires you to have to ditch your old thing because the software won't work on it anymore. This company has taken a different approach. It makes sure that the, the new features that are being added that can be, couldn't be, beamed into the new products. They are also um, taking a, a cue from Dell, like not from Dell, but they're also doing the same thing that Dell is doing by re replacing the adhesives that keep things together with fasteners so they can be taken apart yeah. more easily. So, you know, designing these things at the, at the outset to be dis disassembled and, and uh, brought into a better place when they're, when they're not quite operating in the way they should, it, it's just such a an important thing that doesn't get emphasized enough. So anyway, that was what the way my brain was working this week. Yeah, and I'm so glad to see that this is happening. I'm so glad you wrote about this, Heather. I mean, this this speaks directly to uh, one of Bill McDonough's classic uh, lines that design is the first signal of human intention. And mm -hmm. you know, if we're designing these things to not be fixable, not be upgradable, not you know, not be repairable, um, uh, then we're basically designing waste. Uh, mm -hmm. future waste, perhaps, but waste nonetheless. Uh, whereas if we're designing these things and, and thinking about, you know, how the materials are screwed and glued and, you know, put together and how they can be <laughs> disassembled and, um, and and what happens to them. And, and there's actually, I mean, it's one thing to do, to design it for disassembly, by the way, and there's, mm -hmm. it's, it's more to actually have a process for taking them back and disassembling mm -hmm. them, and then a third mm -hmm. to have some use for those disassembled things, whether they're, you know, reusing some of the the materials right. or products directly, or resmelting the metals into new metals, or you know, whatever it, it can be, uh, refurbishing things and reusing them in the next product. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. there's, this is a part of the design revolution and the materials revolution because. You know, some of the materials you write about aluminum, uh, that's pretty, you know, smelt, resmeltable. It's one of the most recycled materials that we right. have. Uh, there's an infrastructure to do that. And, and, you know, turning aluminum, aluminum can be turned back into new aluminum, I think, endlessly. Um, that's certainly not true for uh, a lot of materials, particularly some right. of these, you know, multi, multi-material Franken materials where you've got, you know, plastic laminates on top of metals with some paperboard, you know, in the middle there and, mm -hmm. and three or four or five or six kinds of, of, of plastic uh, layers. You know, how do we think about these things from the get-go? And, you know, and particularly this should be, you know, front and center in the climate tech companies who that are, you know, purportedly designing these, uh, these products and selling them to, you know, improve lives and address uh, some of our big environmental challenges. Mm -hmm. It's not generally thought of at the, from the get-go. Uh, it's certainly not baked into most of the, uh, the the climate tech startups that are being funded by VCs and others. They're not generally asking these questions about, well, what happens to these things someday? And so the yeah. fact that this is becoming uh, at least a little bit. It still still seems early days. Um, uh, a thing is is really really refreshing. Yeah, I think one thing that that one indicator that it is picking up. I think Joel would be all of the 
battery manufacturing mm. initiatives that you see coming into play and the money behind that and in fact the, the 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 manufacturing money behind that with all the automotive companies that is something i think we're going to watch very closely and that could be a leading indicator of this as well yeah well, this brings us over. We've gone from plastics to uh, climate tech, uh, and and now we're going to talk sort of a related field here about packaging. Uh, mm-hmm. Our contributor um, Meg Wilcox uh, wrote a, a really, I think, a great piece on packaging trends. We'll be watching in twenty two, and I had to chuckle a few times in reading this because, you know, for those of us who have been around the mountain a few times. In this field. Change the year. And and the number one thing that she wrote about, and I'm, they're not ranked, it's just the first one that showed up in the list, I'm, I'm guessing, is Extended Producer Responsibility, EPR, which mm-hmm. um, has been around almost as long as I have in this field, which is to say uh, over 30 years. It, it dates back to Sweden in around 1990. This is, of course, the... Uh, the notion, or it's in some cases, the law that says that um, you know manufacturers have to uh, fund the collection and processing of, in this case, packaging. In some cases, it's the products themselves. And uh, she writes about uh, Oregon and Maine, uh, two U.S. states that have have laws around this. Uh, it's certainly in Europe uh, a much uh, more prevalent uh, requirement of manufacturers, but it, it's basically saying that extended producer responsibility is that the the responsibility for the environmental impacts of uh, packaging in this case, but also products extends uh, to uh, what happens after the company sells it or, or you know, whether it sells mm-hmm. it to another company or sells it to a consumer. Um, you know, their responsibility does not end at the cash register. Their responsibility, uh, they have to be involved with, you know, making sure that this stuff has uh, has a useful life or has some responsible uh, uh, disposition and in, in many cases funding that or uh, setting up systems to to care for that. So uh, I think you know that was the first one of, of six and truth and labeling laws, um, uh, several others. What stood out for you on this list, Heather? Yeah, you know, I liked the labeling one because I think that um, there's so much uh, ambiguity, you know, to, to, to your earlier point about headlines and is it the war on plastic or is it the war on plastic waste and, and the language you use. There's so much um, that's really hard to decipher on on packaging. And, uh, you know, you look at a label and you think it's recyclable, biodegradable. Are, you know, what what is it really? And I think um, we, we've got uh, California passed the truth and labeling for recyclable materials last year. Uh, there's some similar uh, legislation in my own state. Um, New York is supposed to be looking at this as well. So I think and it goes back to like helping consumers. I mean, I, I believe in extended producer responsibility because those, the companies are putting this stuff out there. They can't just lay it all on the consumers. Like, yes, we buy the stuff. Yes, we should have a pl- play a role in have figuring out how what to do with packaging and plastics and all these other things. But it shouldn't be all on the consumer. And the consumer, I think there's a lot of what really well-meaning people that are trying to figure out how to do the right thing. And you just, I don't know. I mean, how it's, it's confusing. It's confusing to me. And I write about this stuff. So that was one thing I sort of said, yeah, aha. And then um, I just, I really had to laugh about number four, which is a more holistic approach to packaging. Yes. This, 
it's not all black and white. We really need to look at the different uh, benefits and and pros and cons of each choice. And uh, the one of the points made in here is that you know sometimes the recyclable package has lower life cycle impacts than a non recyclable package, but about half the same time, the same the opposite is true. So you know, like it depends on what you're looking at. It it depends on the use case, and uh, we just don't spend enough time, I think, looking at. Um, uh, we need to look at this as a service. Like what is, what is the best way to do this for all of these reasons? And, um, you know, that kind of relates to one of the other items here, which is when should something have a package that's, that's made and intended for refill? Like not everything should be refillable. I mean, let's, let's be real, but many things should be. And what are they and what, what size formats and, you know, what, what, where does it make sense and where does it make economic sense? You know? So I don't know. It is a really good piece. And it's something that I know our readers and our, our community really spends a lot of time worrying about and thinking about. Um, and you know, it's just, it's a great piece. It's a great sort of list of, of prompts and reminders of where to focus attention. You know, what struck me most about this list, Heather, as I scan these uh, six trends is that, they're all just kind of common sense, <laughs> extended producer responsibility. Yes, the producers should take responsibility and not just put stuff out there and say it's not our problem to uh, truth and labeling. Yeah, if something is says it's recyclable, it actually needs to be recyclable. Uh, three, toxics out of packaging. Yeah, I mean, we should not have pa- toxics in packaging, particularly packaging that is near uh, near food. Uh, the holistic approach to packaging. Yes, uh, number four. Uh, yeah, it's not just about... Um, uh, recycling. It's it's about um, uh, you know any number of other solutions because recycling it, it, recyclability isn't always the answer. Uh, the growth of reuse and um, refill number five. Well, yeah, that just makes sense. We shouldn't be having s- single use packaging. And then the accountability. The last one. Uh, yeah, you know companies need to be accountable for what they're putting out there and how they're doing and how they're improving over time. So. As I said, this is just common sense, and I'll be the first to say that moving from common sense to common practice is a whole nother problem. Well, it's a new year and it's another opportunity to check in with our friend James Murray, the editor-in-chief at Business Green over in the UK. Uh, It's been a while, James, and uh, not without reason. You had a little bout with a little bit of a virus there called, uh, called, well, which virus was it? Uh, yeah, I, I I got the last of the Delta variant in the UK. Or I say the last, it's still, it's still knocking about. But before, before the Omicron wave hit London, I managed to get myself a nice dose of the Delta variant just after COP26. So, uh, yeah, and I was I was laid up for a good fortnight. It wasn't it wasn't a pleasant start to December at all. Well, I'm glad you're better. I'm glad you're back in action. We need you uh, covering uh, all the great stuff that that you and your team at Business Green do. And and that's kind of what I wanted to talk about. Um, what are you covering? What is uh, on the front burner for you for 2022? It's uh, it's like every year, I suppose, for the green economy. It's pulling in two different directions at the same time. So, I mean, let's let's start with the upbeat, optimistic stuff. I think that's probably the best place to to begin. You, you know, the the UK um, 
produced its net zero strategy, a long-awaited sort of really big multi-hundred-page document uh, towards the end of last year, uh, just ahead of of COP26 and all the kind of broadly positive announcements that came out of that. Uh, You know, and that strategy contained a lot of really ambitious or confirmed a lot of really ambitious action. Um, You know, we're, we're planning to stop selling new petrol and diesel cars from 2030, which is now just eight years away. Uh, massive cuts in emissions again by 2030. Uh, plans to be operating a fully zero emission um, power grid by uh, 2035. Um, and and obviously, you know, we, we talk about the 2020s, but we're now into 2022. And by the end of this year, we'll be a third of the way through this decade that was positioned as the most important in human history in many ways. So <laughs> there's a huge sort of focus on delivery um, from government and business and really kind of accelerating progress in those areas that uh, those areas where progress is particularly cost competitive and and compelling. So, you know, we've got another wave of offshore wind um, auctions and renewable energy auctions coming up. Um, We're seeing electric vehicles now over 10% of the market and growing fast, and that's going to continue this year. We're seeing lots of innovation in kind of green investment and um, heat pumps is another area that's kind of just bubbling up and starting to move faster. Uh, and, and then we've got some really interesting projects in the pipeline on big industrial innovations, so carbon capture and storage, hydrogen and the like. So that whole, you know, all that stuff we've been talking about for a long time, um, it, it's either kind of at an inflection point and looking to accelerate, uh, whether it's like EVs and renewables, or the foundations are being laid for us to start to deliver progress in other areas. So, you know, that's the good news. Um and, and we expect to see lots more big announcements, big investment flowing and, and progress on, on all those fronts. Well, it sounds like there may be some bad news behind that. Uh, there's always a, the other side of the coin when it comes to sustainability. What, what's that about? Well, I mean, the flip side is, and I think this is probably true of every country, is just the level of uncertainty, um, you know, the fear, uncertainty and doubt that's out there. I mean, obviously, you've got the pandemic that every time we sort of hope we're getting a grip on and moving forward. You're getting another wave of the virus, new variants that which just sort of knocks confidence, knocks planning, um, and, and and has a sort of impact. Uh, we're seeing really significant inflationary pressures um, uh, in the UK. Again, that's a sort of part of a global trend. Um, the, the soaring gas prices are knocking onto uh, consumer bills and business bills, um, and then that is politicising. Sadly, the, the the net zero transition. You know, the UK hasn't had that kind of divisive um, Republican v Democrat. Uh, split on climate policy up to now but the handful of people who sort of err towards that more climate denialist climate skeptic view have been really emboldened by the fact energy prices are rising Um, and no matter how often you say they're rising because of gas prices they insist they're rising because of climate policy and are pushing really hard now for kind of a watering down of the net zero agenda they insist they still want to act on climate they're not like these full-blown climate denialists but they say, oh, come on, let's be more pragmatic. Let's move a bit slower because look at the cost impacts on working families. Um, and, and of course, that can resonate with the media and, and with the public, even if it is based on a really, in my view, quite a poor analysis of, of where these pressures are coming from. Uh, so you've got these kind of this political pushback that's happening. And, and again, that can that can scare investors. There's there's risk that that could filter through into policy decisions. Uh, and, and that's amplified by the fact that uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson is under intense pressure. Uh, there's growing reports that he breached COVID rules. You know, the leadership challenges are mobilising. Uh, 
potentially for a kind of leadership challenge in, in the near future. And and the worry for those in the green movement and, and green businesses in the UK is the two most likely replacements for him, uh, the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss and the Chancellor Rishi Sunak, um, are both, to date, they're much less aggressive on climate action than Boris Johnson has proven to be, actually. He's proven to be quite positive on this stuff. Uh, they are much more sort of traditional conservatives, one from the sort of libertarian wing, one from the more sort of fiscal conservative wing. And and they're, to date, they just haven't been as bold um, or as engaged with this agenda. So there's a slight worry that, you know, that the political dynamics could change and that feeds into the policy dynamics. And of course, that, that, that then impacts business decisions and business progress. So um, fights we thought or we sort of optimistically thought might have been won, uh, looks like they're going to have to be revisited. Yeah, that sounds vaguely familiar here as well. Um, I'm wondering, you, you talked about the, the, the business, the private sector now has to meet the, the commitments they've made. How is that going? Do you get a sense that companies are full steam ahead on meeting those commitments or are they backpedaling? Or, uh, what, I know it's hard to generalize, but what's the general tenor? I, I think it's still broadly positive. I mean, that you know, net zero targets are now very, very popular, particularly among the FTSE 350, the big businesses. We're seeing more and more of them talk about putting pressure on um, in a constructive way on their supply chain and on their suppliers and demanding that they start to have these net zero targets in place. Um, the technologies are getting more and more visible. I mean, primarily that's renewables and electric vehicles, but, you know, we'd like to see more progress on green buildings and and, and materials and other areas as well. Um, so it does feel pretty embedded. Um, it, you know, it's it's a rare business now that on the a rare public facing business and a rare big business in the UK that doesn't have something constructive to say on net zero has targets. The, the issue is, as we're seeing everywhere, is even in a country that's fairly advanced on this stuff, the quality varies massively and the level of credibility varies massively. So one of the big stories for this year is going to be the work of like the Science-Based Targets Initiative and the CDP and others uh, to kind of really try and standardise what a credible net zero target looks like um, and, and demand that, that companies are adhering to sort of best-in-class plans. So before I let you go, James, how do you view the United States then the role that in the influence that American policy, American companies have on the, what's going on in the UK? Or does it, is it a factor at all? I think it's still a huge factor. I mean, the, the old line of, you know, America sneezes and Europe catches a cold is is still true. You know, it's still the kind of preeminent economic superpower and geopolitical superpower. Um, so I, I think, you know, it is still watched very, very closely. And, and, and again, it's that, that kind of paradox that we see in that on one side, you know, US companies, particularly the big multinationals, are seen as leaders in this space. I mean, Silicon Valley in particular seen as sort of hugely influential. Um, you know, Tesla being a, a prime example of a company that's kind of transformed that entire sector uh, by the, the strength of its example. Um, so you kind of, there is a lot of sort of focus on that innovation agenda from the US. Uh, and then the flip side is there's just this huge concern about the, the inability of US politics to get the the scale of action and the kind of credible and and stable policies that they're not perfect in in Brussels and Westminster, but they do have that greater sense of permanence, which 
helps investors and helps businesses sort of invest with confidence. And green experts on this side of the Atlantic have been looking on it in horror, really, at sort of Joe Manchin's ability to a single person's ability, even when the president was elected on a clear mandate, to block the ambitious climate action that we need to see. Um, and of course, there's the huge worry that that filters into the geopolitics. I mean, China's, it, it was an open secret that Chinese, leading Chinese diplomats at COP26, their argument was, you know, we don't believe the US will be able to deliver on the pledges that it's made. And every day that passes without big infrastructure bill passing, the more that argument carries sway with developing economies and emerging economies. So it just knocks onto the whole global climate effort is, is the fear if, if the US can't lead and, and can't lead not because US politicians in power don't want to but because of the sort of Byzantine nature of Congress and and your political system so no we do we do, it is watched closely and it does matter around the world um, and obviously that's good news when US companies are leading the clean tech revolution but also bad news when US fossil fuel companies and the, the, the people they pay in Congress um uh, are hampering it. Yeah, well, we'll keep uh, pushing the, the string at our end, and, and, and you do that on your side of the Atlantic, too. Thanks, as always. James Murray is editor-in-chief of Business Green, and it's always a pleasure, James. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Joe. We have part two of your wish list for 2022. Um, here you'll hear from five of our listeners, including four of our past 30 under 30 alumni. And by the way, you'll be seeing the nomination process for that, uh, that list starting soon at the end of January. Hi, I'm Zach Angelini, Senior Manager of Environmental Stewardship at Timberland. And as we kick off 2022, what I'm most excited about is the opportunity for healing and growing. I believe it has become really clear in the past few years that we cannot sustain our current systems. I think they really need to evolve and they need to heal. And just working to reduce the negative impacts of these systems is no longer a satisfying goal, especially when we know we have the opportunity to create a new reality where businesses are actively participating in the coming more alive of the world. For any company that sources materials from agriculture, I think this is a really tangible opportunity through regenerative agriculture to help heal and restore the environments that we source from and work to create a world that's more alive, more abundant, more resilient, um, and even more beautiful than the world that we have today. And to me, there is really nothing more exciting and fulfilling than that mission, whether it's for the employees of a company, for consumers, um, really for anyone on this planet. I'm Lisa Curtis, founder and CEO of Cooley Cooley, the leading brand selling the superfood Moringa. My big takeaway from 2021 is that the future of work is flexible. We've shown that we can work remotely. We know that people are productive. We know that it is good for the environment for us not to have to commute every day. And we know that it's great for self-sustainability too. It's good for our mental health, good for us to be able to see 
family and kids and um, be able to have a life outside of work. So I'm excited in 2022 for more employers to reshape their workplaces to make the future of work more flexible. I'm Bonnie Long, Waste Management and Circular Economy Consultant at ERM. Looking ahead to 2022, I'm most excited about seeing more countries and companies buying into the circular economy and making material changes to our existing way of consumption. I also look forward to seeing Indigenous knowledge being embraced as we look for solutions that enable the transition into the circular economy. I'm Miguel Kuen-Hing, Associate Director of North America for EOS at Federated Hermes. Looking ahead to 2022, I'm most excited by the upcoming proxy season, building upon an incredible 2021 season for climate resolutions and the continued evolution for the conversation between companies and investors on scope three emissions strategy. 2021 sent a clear signal from the investor landscape regarding the decision usefulness of climate strategy and performance data. And it will be interesting and exciting to see how companies respond to industry developments and the increasing focus on climate as we march ever closer to 2030. My name is Elisabeth Chabom and I'm a hospitality design and operations professional currently rebooting. What I'm most excited about for 2022 is the needle in the haystack phenomenon you mentioned referencing Caddy Cross's essay. The idea that people who want to help and sense that this is an urgent matter, quoting her article, may be more readily allowed to enter the field experienced or not. I gather there are a few like me who could bring subject matter expertise to the table, ideas on how to integrate sustainability more readily in our respective industries of expertise, while gathering insights on what we need to learn next in order to better help further the cause. Excited and helpful. Thank you for asking and thank you for so generously sharing information year round, allowing me to form opinions. Wishing you all the best for 2022 and looking forward to continuing the journey with you. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to learn about the organization stories and events we've mentioned. While you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. We have seven of them. And they're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com newsletters to sign up. We love your comments, your questions, your tips. Hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. 